All right, it's, uh, it's my pleasure uh, to introduce the next panel on ownership on the march, recent progress in supporting employee ownership. And uh, we're going to begin uh, with a, uh, a speech by uh, Jim Bonham. Uh, Jim doesn't need introduction. Uh, uh, he's the president uh, and CEO of the ESOP Association uh, and also the Employee Ownership Foundation. Uh, it's no exaggeration to say that, uh, that Jim uh, is the senior thought leader and policy leader of the employee ownership community in the United States. And he sits in a rare seat uh, hearing from the thousands of companies who are actually uh, doing this. Uh, uh, rather than just the sort of the pointy-headed scholarly research and the sort of uh, uh, in the uh, in the sand uh, practitioners, Jim sees and hears it all, and so uh, uh, Aspen and Rutgers are very pleased that he is going to tell us like it is for the next fifteen minutes. Jim, thank you very much. Thank you, Joseph. All right, if uh, anybody can't hear me in the back, immediately start waving your arms because I do have a tendency to wander a little bit from the, uh, the podium and also to, uh, to, to speak a little softly. Um, so I, I first want to start by thanking uh, Maureen Conway from Aspen for hosting this ideas forum and for Aspen's interests and efforts to advance employee ownership. Um, for those of you who work on the Hill or have worked on the Hill, you really understand when Aspen starts taking on initiative, what that means. So the fact that Aspen has taken such an interest is really tremendous and I could not be more grateful. Um, I also wanna thank Adrian Eaton, uh, the Dean and Joseph Blasi, the director of the Rutgers Institute. Um, and on behalf of the Employee Ownership Foundation with whom we've partnered for decades now, um, most of that under Michael Keeling's leadership who's here with us today, um, you know, I thank you for your work, especially the body of research and all the data collection that's been amassed in that nearly three decades, over four decades, three decades. Um, I also wanna express my gratitude on behalf of our membership for those of you here from the media, uh, all the facilitators and the panelists, and of course the congressional staff who are coming in and visiting throughout the day. Um, now, as you all hear throughout the next couple of days, America has in front of it an opportunity to recalibrate the employment bargain between employers and the owners. And I believe indeed, I suspect everyone you hear from during this forum believes that many of the tensions, many of the difficulties, many of the core problems we face in our nation are firmly rooted in wealth and compensation inequality. And that employee ownership is not only an elegant solution to those problems, but an eminently achievable solution with a proven track record of results over the last five decades. So I wanna set the stage a little bit about what's been happening in Washington and state capitals uh, across the country. Why are we here and why are we here right now? Why is this moment so important for employee ownership? Um, we've heard our reference already to the silver tsunami. You know, over the next 10 years, more than two and a half million baby boomer business owners will need to transition their privately held businesses to new stewardship when they retire. Many will be passed to the next generation of the family. Many will be sold to or merged with a competitor or a strategic buyer. Many will simply cease to exist. The assets being sold off in liquidation sales and their jobs go away. This will be the single largest transfer of wealth producing assets in history. $7.3 trillion of private businesses, according to the New York Times, just last week. Over 65% of these business owners have no current succession plan. Now, we talk about the boomers, but not far on the heels of the boomers are the Gen Xers, who already collectively own $6.8 trillion in privately held businesses. So this is not just a 10-year opportunity. It actually extends beyond that. Currently, the top 1% of American households hold as much wealth as the bottom 90% combined. And for that bottom 90%, 
the vast majority of the wealth that they hold is actually their home. The engine for the wealth accumulation at that top 1% is ownership. And that's why we're here today, to find ideas and pathways to create more ownership of wealth producing assets for average Americans. To find ways that this literal once in a generation opportunity to recalibrate the agreement between employees and, and owners is not squandered or lost. All right, I wanna start quickly, you know, Joseph gave a, a, a brief introduction about you know, who are we? Who is the ESOP Association Employee Ownership Foundation? So I wanna share a little bit about the organizations and companies and professional service providers that I speak for today. Um, I have the honor, the privilege to serve as president and CEO of the ESOP Association. And I'm also the president of the Employee Ownership Foundation. Now, while related, these two organizations serve different parts of our mission. Combined, we will spend more than $100 million over the next 10 years advancing the cause of employee ownership. The ESOP Association is the only comprehensive national trade association for ESOP companies and the professionals who provide services to them. Our membership includes more than 2,100 employee-owned companies, and that includes nearly every company in the nation that is majority owned by its employees through an employee stock ownership plan. Our membership also includes over a thousand professional service providers and firms who perform the work of establishing, administering, defending, advising, and serving as trustees for ESOPs. Plainly, we are the largest organization in the world advancing employee ownership. We represent over $1.3 trillion in value and the roughly 10.5 million ESOP plan participants in the country. To put that in perspective, as I often like to do, if you combined the entire US auto industry from the manufacturers to, to the parts manufacturers, to the service providers and the dealerships, they represent 8.5 million employees or 2 million more. It's an important point to understand how large employee ownership actually is within our own economy. Every year our association produces more than 160 live or virtual educational conferences that are attended by more than 15,000 people nationwide. At those events, on average, between 10 and 15% of all of our attendees are the business owners or senior managers at those businesses who are investigating the option of selling their business to, our, to their employees through an ESOP. So both through our direct contact with business owners and through our professional members who are trying to make these deals happen, we are keenly aware and in tune with the obstacles to forming new ESOPs and to keeping existing ESOPs going. And while I always and genuinely uh, join in celebrating our friends and allies in the worker co-ops and the employee ownership trust space, um, there's no doubt as has already been stated, ESOPs remain as the single largest and most successful model of employee ownership at scale. Um, we look forward, we always wanna work with and partner uh, with these other forms of employee ownership. But as you might imagine, um, I tend to wear the hat for ESOPs and champion them the most. The Employee Ownership Foundation is our affiliated 501c3 and is supported almost entirely through voluntary contributions made by our membership of the ESOP Association. Since 1992, the foundation has been one of the largest funders of data collection, academic research, and financial support for programs run by, run by Rutgers and others in the employee ownership space. And the foundation now raises and spends over a million dollars a year in this space. So my role today is to discuss the legislative and regulatory initiatives that have been underway over the last roughly five years at the federal, state, and even local levels. And I'll add to that a growing international collaboration that we are stoking as well with partners in the UK, Canada, Japan, and throughout the EU. Uh, it was great to see Graham Nuttall here. Um, and if you don't know Graham, certainly get to know him. He's uh, an amazing individual and is, um, will become, if not already known as a giant in the employee ownership space worldwide. There are numerous barriers or friction points to the growth of employee ownership that are being addressed in small and large ways. And I put them all in roughly five buckets. First bucket would be rules and regulation, or more appropriately stated, the lack of specific and reliable regulation on the most essential element to ownership, the assignment of valuation to the business asset to be bought or owned by an ESOP. It is our belief, uh, and it is our belief that this one area 
is the root of most obstacles to new ESOP formation and their ongoing operation. You simply cannot establish an ESOP or properly run one if you cannot assign a value to the business according to well-defined regulation that has taken into consideration the views and the wisdom of interested stakeholders to the process. Second bucket would be capital finance. There is ready availability of finance to form new ESOPs or re-leverage existing ESOPs up to about 80 to 90% of the transaction. However, the inability to fully finance a business into an ESOP at reasonable fair market terms is a deal breaker for a huge number of otherwise willing business owners who would found an ESOP. The third is awareness and knowledge. Now these are two very different things. Now I am not one who believes that there is a lack of awareness of employee ownership or ESOPs in the marketplace. Um, what I do believe is that when the conversation is initiated inside the corporate suite about potentially selling the business, the ESOP option is raised and then perhaps very superficially dismissed rapidly due to a lack of knowledge, mostly on the part of business advisors who the owner has been trusting for years and years and years as they've grown their business. The fourth bucket would be incentives. Now, business owners need to be properly incentivized to go through the challenge and expense of forming an ESOP versus the ease and simplicity of selling to a strategic buyer or to a competitor. And the fifth would be sustainability. Um, managing the repurchase obligation for departing plan participants has become perhaps the single biggest reason for plan termination and the sale of an ESOP. So what are we doing about these five buckets? I wanna talk about each one in its own. And the first is the area of rules and regulation. You know, when ERISA, when ERISA was passed in 1974, uh, Congress expected the Department of Labor to promulgate regulations to define a term called adequate consideration. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with adequate consideration, it basically boils down to this. Has the trustee that's responsible for protecting the interests of the employees who are beneficiaries of the plan provided a good faith, fair market analysis of the value that the employees are paying for the shares of that company? Have they done their, has the trustee done his or her job in making sure they're not overpaying for the company? Well, that's what ownership is in a nutshell, is having a willing buyer and a willing seller come together on a price. Now in the late 1980s, the Department of Labor initiated but terminated uh, and never issued these regulations. But then starting in 2008, the Department of Labor has had in place a special investigation project aimed specifically at ESOPs. And since the initiation of that project, over two thirds of all existing ESOPs have come under investigation by the Department of Labor. Now imagine if two thirds of the businesses in this country came under investigation by a federal government agency, what would happen with the Chamber of Commerce or what would happen uh, with the NFIB and the hue and cry that you would hear? Um, we have been trying to raise that as the, the, the attention level of that for years now. The massive chilling effect of this initiative has been compounded by the lack of clear regulated, regulatory guidance um, for business owners seeking to form an ESOP. So this one-two punch makes it quick work for an advisor to dismiss the employee ownership option for an otherwise willing founder. And I can say, I can't tell you how many times uh, I have had a business owner who really desires to sell to their employees come to me and say, I just can't do it because I, I, I don't want to have uh, second guessing five years, seven years, 10 years down the road. Um, we're trying doing everything we can to follow the rules such as they are, but it's just too much. So I'm going to go sell it to private equity. Now, the Department of Labor, to their credit, will point to a series of lawsuit settlement agreements that they have struck with individual businesses that they feel are sufficient guidance. And we could not agree, disagree more because those, uh, what they call process agreements, were created with no stakeholder input. They are unique only to the facts of that one case. They were struck under duress, a threat of a lawsuit 
with the U.S. federal uh, government, and they change. In order for us to have a reasonable approach to forming ESOPs and to remove some of those barriers, we need to have clear regulatory guidance. Now, fortunately, um, last year in the Secure 2.0 Act, which was passed uh, at the end of the Congress, um, Congress directed the Department of Labor to formally issue these regulations. Um, and the Department of Labor has committed in writing to us that they will do so with stakeholder input with a formal notice and comment rulemaking. And I'm also pleased to announce, um, I'm not sure that any of you stay up late at night watching the Department of Labor's uh, website, but we do. Um, I'm pleased to announce that just last evening the Department of Labor published a notice that they have formally entered the pre-rulemaking phase and are undertaking stakeholder meetings on this rulemaking. Um, this is a monumental moment for the ESOP community because getting these clear rules starts a cascade effect. Um, I, I, I love uh, seeing and, and hearing Heather talk about, well, we, we need to streamline the process. We need to make it easier to form ESOPs. We need to make it easier to administer them. That begins with clarity on how you value. Once you have that clarity, it becomes so much easier because right now what we have is layer upon layer upon layer of redundancy and cost in forming an ESOP to be protected against the Department of Labor investigation. So we're really thrilled that this is one of the main things that's going forward. Now, uh, this is going to be a long process. Um, we're thrilled that there's going to be stakeholder input, um, and it's necessary. So this is one of those please stay tuned in this spaces in the space areas. I'm going to move on to uh, finance. Um, creating a complete capital stack for ESOP formation has been an enduring issue um, for decades. So here's the scenario in basic layman's terms. You know, a, a business owner wants to sell their business. Um, they entertain offers. The buyer usually arranges the finance. For an ESOP, you have a sell team and a buy team, and the owner is working with the trustee to arrange the finance. In almost every transaction, the seller is required to finance part or even all of the deal. This is a deal killer for most sellers. When they make the decision to exit their business, most of them just want out. They want to sell their business, they want to go buy their boat, they want to go travel the world. They don't want to be encumbered with Will the new management be able to run the business, and will I get the rate of return that they have promised me by giving them a seller's note? This year, um, uh, about a month ago, uh, the EEIA, the, uh, the Employee Equity Investment Act, was introduced, um, thanks to the, the tremendous efforts of a whole host of folks. Um, it is a strongly bipartisan bill. And the EEIA, in combination with the Main Street Employee Ownership Act that was passed back in 2017, seek to address some of these capital stack shortfalls. Um, EEIA utilizes the existing SBIC program, creates employee ownership investment funds that can access government guarantees to finance up to 100% ESOP transactions. Um, the ability for these funds to, on their own, seek out companies to purchase and be able to offer not only what they believe is a fair market price, but also have the financing to close the deal is a game changer. This piece of legislation could dramatically increase the number of ESOPs being formed. Now, this is going to be another long road ahead, but we are committed to making sure that this legislation becomes law. The third area is this area of awareness and knowledge. Now, awareness is what it actually is this creature called employee ownership. Um, you know, about four years ago, we had Frank Luntz, who is a, a brilliant communicator, um, come and talk to one of our national conferences about you know, ESOPs. And one of the first things he said was, what is an ESOP? I, th I thought it was like a fairy tale, like ESOP's tales. Because why are you guys not just calling this employee ownership? Why are you not the Employee Ownership Association? Well, there is sort of this you know, profound you know, lack of awareness or lack of knowledge of, wait a minute, what do you mean your company is owned by the employees? That doesn't compute for me because in the American lexicon, when we think about ownership, there's some rich guy or a rich family that owns the company that you work for. Or it's a publicly traded company and a whole bunch of shareholders own it, but it's really sort of controlled by um, a smaller group of people. 
but awareness that there is a model of business where the employees are the beneficiaries of the growth and equity of their own company needs to be increased. Now, knowledge is in the area of professionals who can navigate uh, a founder, a potential founder, through a transaction. And this is an area where we need to have some work. Now, in the, in the Work Act that was passed last year, we created the new Employee Ownership Initiative within the Department of Labor. And this initiative uh, is designed to start addressing both of these issues. Uh, this year, the first step is to actually create the office, create the initiative. Um, and while that sounds simple, it's not the easiest thing to do because the first step is deciding where to house it. You know, the Department of Labor is not a monolith. They have EBSA, the Employee Benefits Security Administration, which is the enforcement division. Uh, they're the ones who conduct investigations. They're the ones that they prosecute. But there are lots of other offices. In fact, I think we're going to hear later today from um, the director of the OASP, OASP um, at the, the Department of Labor, which is designed to promote policy and to encourage retirement plans. Now, if you're going to have an initiative that promotes employee ownership, do you put it with the guys who are investigating all of the employee owners, or do you put it with the guys who want to promote it? The placement of this office is critical, and that's what happens this year. Um, starting next year, Congress authorized the expenditure of $50 million over the course of five years in grants that the Department of Labor will award to states to run programs designed to raise awareness to provide additional knowledge and training for professionals uh, and for business owners, uh, and indeed to actually provide funding for feasibility studies for the formation of new ESOPs. So the second task, after getting the office located in the correct place, the second task will be to make sure that all 50 states are aware of this opportunity so that they will, they will plan for it and they will make application for this grant funding because my belief is that $50 million will not even come close to the demand that's going to be out there for it. This is already included in the Work Act, but again, we have a long road ahead. We have to seek appropriations. We need to make sure that it's properly administered and that it's located in the right place. Moving on to incentives. If there's any lesson about ESOP formation that we've learned in the last 50 years, it is this. This is gonna sound really simple. There is no employee ownership without the founding business owner selling to the employees. ESOPs don't start on their own. They start because a business owner makes the decision to sell to their employees. The primary incentive of the US is the 1042 tax deferral for the selling shareholder. However, since the mid-1990s, the corporate form has been treated differently. Only C corporations were eligible for the 1042 uh, exemption. Now, uh, thanks to the Work Act that was passed last year, um, we are, uh, uh, S corporations will begin to be eligible for this same tax benefit. It's a start, but as Senator Cardin said, we still need to harmonize the treatment of S corporations and C corporations. Um, this is a very expensive proposition for those of you um, who uh, understand CBO scoring. There are also states now looking to provide their own incentives using taxes, grants, and other types of supports. And there'll be lots of people talking about what's going on in all the various states. And the final area is this area of sustainability. And there's two main areas in sustainability for ESOPs that I want to highlight. And when I say sustainability, you know, in order to grow employee ownership, you can't lose the existing employee-owned companies to sales. The single biggest driver of the termination for uh, ESOP plans is, uh, is the repurchase obligation. That you have a class of employees who have over time accumulated significant value in their ESOP account. And the business finds itself in the position that it can't really afford the RPO um, without significantly re-leveraging itself or doing damage to the business or its long-term plans. At the same time, they're getting massive offers coming in from private equity um, or other strategic buyers. So the simple solution is we'll just sell it. Um, we can still work here. We'll all get a payday. But the employees are no longer the owners. There needs to be some greater flexibility on timelines for accounts in excess of a certain amount. 
Um, there also needs to be a look at the diversification requirements um, that are applied to ESOP plans uh, because what happens is that employees will reach a certain age and then they will immediately start um, diversifying their account even though they are widely diversified through their 401k. Um, the other couple of areas on sustainability I really want to just touch on very briefly is that we need to do something to uh, address conversions from, employee, from business, uh, private business to employee-owned that become constrained due to some structural impediments. The one that is most easy to explain are government is in the government contracting space. We have thousands of women-owned, minority-owned, veteran-owned businesses that would love to become ESOPs. Many of them have, are partial ESOPs, but they can only go to 49% because the moment they go to 50%, they lose all of their um, preferential status for, as a government contractor. So there needs to be some kind of a look-through provision uh, to apportion the ownership shares of the ESOP itself to the ownership of the company so that they can maintain their status. Now, I could go on with a number of other ideas, especially in the ESG space and others, um, but I see Joseph has given me the hook, um, so I will... Uh, I will wrap things up there, and again, thank you. Thank you, Maureen, for having me. Thank you, Joseph, for having me. I'd like to introduce the panel. First of all, uh, Eleanor Mueller, who is economics reporter from Politico. Uh, her deep insights and experience are so welcome. Eleanor, thank you very much for taking over this panel. And uh, will the members of the panel, uh, uh, Ike Brannon, president of Capital Policy Analytics, uh, a senior fellow at the Jack Kemp Foundation, former fellow at the Cato Institute, and a longtime experienced Hill staffer. Uh, Ike, thank you very much. Uh, I.D. Caldero, Senior Vice President, Finance and Strategy, Crepes a Latte, an ESOP company. And uh, finally, Ken Baker, CEO of New Age Industries. With that, I will pass the baton to our wonderful <laughs> moderator. All right, well, thank you so much for having us. The moderator of the earlier discussion was actually my editor, so we're keeping it <laughs> within the family today. Uh, my name is Eleanor Mueller. I cover Congress for all of Politico's economic policy teams. Um, that includes uh, labor. And before that, I was actually a labor reporter. So I've written a lot about <clears throat> minimum wage, unions, childcare, paid leave, a number of things. But I've admittedly not written about employee ownership, and so I'm excited to learn a little bit more about, you know, what we're talking about today. Uh, I'd love if we could, uh, you know, go around one more time and introduce ourselves and, you know, say what you uh, hope to get out of this panel today. And Ike, we'll start with you. Great. Uh, thanks. Uh, my, my name is Ike Brandon. Uh, uh, so I, uh, I'm at a uh, consulting firm called Capital Policy Analytics, and I'm a senior fellow at the Jack Kemp Foundation. And uh, once upon a time, I was uh, chief economist for the Senate Finance Committee. I worked for Orrin Hatch. Uh, who was a uh, big proponent of uh, ESOPs, and we spent a lot of time thinking about how to make uh, their lives easier. And as was pointed out, it's it's not a uh, it's a very difficult uh, environment for them to uh, to grow right now. Um, hello, my name is Ive. I'm a reformed investment banker or former <laughs> investment banker. Um, and I found my way to ESOPs. I um, after working on Wall Street for a number of years and helping billionaires make more millions, um, I decided to take my skills and help the middle market, small business, small businesses with raising capital, succession planning, governance, and growth strategies. And along the way, while I loved working with uh, the entrepreneurs who had founded their business and helping them empower themselves and uh, grow the value of their business, I also saw so much about the impact that their businesses had on their employees and the contribution their employees were giving them to help grow. And I fell in love with the ESOP structure, and I convinced a client to um, turn down a private equity offer. Um, it, it wasn't just my convincing. They went through it and learned eyes wide open some of the limitations of selling to private equity. I will give myself credit for getting a valuation in an ESOP that beat PE. Um, and we converted Crepes a Latte to 100% ownership uh, five years ago. What's Crepes a Latte? 
We are the market leader in experiential hospitality. We create amazing brand experiences for big companies like Pfizer and Amazon um, at major events like trade shows. Um, we have about 33 full-time employees, uh, 150 part-time employees, and we recently updated our plan to allow some of our part-time employees to be eligible for the plan, which we're excited because they're our brand ambassadors. Uh, and I have the also welcome trophy to say that my ESOP advisors all tell me that we were probably one of the most COVID-impacted companies that they worked with. So we lost 100% of revenue, not for a couple weeks, not for two months, but for um, about 14 to 16 months. Um, and then had to rebuild um, and are now post-COVID 30% uh, bigger than we were in 2019, but uh, still working through those challenges. And I'll be excited to talk about how employee ownership impacted us during COVID. Hi. I'm Ken Baker, uh, CEO um, of New Age Industries. I'm also the uh, co-founder and uh, board member of uh, the EO, um, EOX, uh, um, and I'm also uh, co-founder co of the um, PA CEO of the Pennsylvania Center for Employee Ownership. So I'm very much involved with the awareness portion of the um, uh, industry. Um, uh, New Age Industries, I'm, I'm part of the silver tsunami, I guess. I sold, the, um, uh, I sold all the shares. I was the uh, last baker standing. Bought out my brother, bought out my father in uh, the 90s. And... Um, uh, did the ESOP not 100% at the uh, rate from the get-go, but did it over a period of time, which I think is one of the better ways of doing it if you start early. Uh, I did 30% uh, 16, 17 years ago, then 10%, 9%, still had 51% of the company, could do anything I wanted. And then in 2019, I sold the last 51%. So we're 100% employee-owned, sub-subchapter S corporation. We're a manufacturer of plastic tubing and hose and rubber tubing and hose and RFID tagging solutions. We were very much involved with the uh, pandemic uh, vaccine. Um, we supplied uh, Pfizer, um, Moderna, and J&J &J with uh, single-use systems to make the vaccine. So it's been uh, a wild ride. Uh, um, uh, share price has just gone through the roof. And uh, repurchase obligation is a big issue, and we're very much involved with that. I had uh, $31 million going out the door uh, for last year. Um, so, but we still have um, uh, 49 millionaires working at the company, and uh, 27 of that 49 are multimillionaires. And so we have about 285 uh, employees. So we are creating a lot of wealth for our um, our uh, uh, team members. So repurchase obligation is a big issue. Um, and um, so I'm all ears about coming up with ideas. We've already done a releveraging of 30% of the shares. And we, we could talk about that if you'd like. All right, well, before we get into the regulatory aspects of this all, I want to dive a little bit more into the positive impact that being employee-owned had on IDEA, your company, and Ken, yours. And IDEA, we'll start with you. Yeah. Um, well, being in the live events business, particularly major events, conferences that tend to have 20,000, 30,000 uh, attendees, uh, March 2020, uh, we were faced with the fact that all of our events canceled. <laughs> and then, you know, two weeks, <laughs> we planned for six months thinking that Q4 2020 we'd be back. And then by June, we knew nothing until there's a vaccine. Um, we had to ask each employee to take a pay cut. As a leadership team, we spoke, and basically we were committed. We were not going to furlough everybody, even though there were people in the warehouse and in shipping that we would have no functional need for because there, there was no job to be done. Uh, but we committed to keeping everybody on, uh, to asking for pay cuts as well as reduction in hours. Um, we did limited furloughs, really more to give executive leadership time. And when I say like three to four week furloughs to give executive leadership some time on what to do with everybody. <laughs> um, and then focused on a pivot where we launched a new product um, 
within 60 days of going home. And uh, we're able to achieve about 10% of revenue from that pivot, which I think is remarkable. If you think about launching a new segment, you'd be glad to get 10% in the first 24 months. Every single person helped on the production line of our Better Together boxes, uh, salespeople included, uh, executive leadership included. Um, executive leadership took even larger pay cuts than our, our normal uh, team members. And we shared all these actions transparently as well as in one-in-one -in -one meetings. So open communication and updates as to how the business were going gave us the buy-in where at points in um, 2020, people could have gone on unemployment benefits and made more money. Um, and we were concerned about that, of that creating that type of culture. And um, we didn't have to have a concern. As long as someone was willing to come into the office and support us, uh, we were we we found something for them to do, um, and they contributed to improving our product that we, you know, we didn't know what we were doing when we launched it. Um, another key statistic is uh, we went back to the office in June 2020, late June 2020, uh, all wearing masks, social distancing, uh, got really minimal kind of issues there. Uh, we were 100% vaccinated, our full-time team members, in June 2021. Also, no pushback. And um, we had all of our part-timers who we re-onboarded, uh, also 100% vaccinated. This is required at most major conferences to enter, and so we had to make it a mandate. Once again, we lost a couple part-timers, but we were able to more than hire to offset and not have an issue. And I think 100% attributed to our culture of employee owners that make our company a place where people want to work and thus mandates like that aren't mandates. They're about supporting our ability to operate and do business. Thank you. And then Ken, you spoke already a little bit about the wealth benefits to employees at your company. Are there other positive impacts you know, that being employee owned has had upon your operations? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, getting, uh, I mentioned at the previous um, uh, segment uh, about uh, continued process improvement. Um, getting uh, uh, team members to actually really engage in improving the organization, improving the profitability of the organization. So I'll tell a, a story or two about <laughs> that. Um, there's going to be some people rolling their eyes in the audience who have heard this story before. So um, uh, when I'm in the business, uh, um, I, I do my MBWA, managing by wandering around, saying good morning, how about those uh, Phillies, they won last night, and happy birthday to somebody on the floor. We have a very large building, uh, and uh, so we have a lot of fork trucks going, bringing raw materials to the end of the production lines, taking finished goods back to the warehouse. So I see one day, uh, one of the fork truck drivers laying a patch, you know, you know what I mean? Spinning the wheels of the, uh, the fork truck, basically beating up the fork truck, beating up the wheels of the fork truck, m putting marks on the floor, just not doing what you really should be doing with a fork truck. So I go up to him and I say, why is it that you're beating up your fork truck? And he kind of goes like this. And I say, here's a better question. Why are you beating up Joe's fork truck? Because he owns that fork truck too. And his head goes down. It's a different conversation. They own everything in the building. They own the scrap. They own that fork truck. They own all the maintenance that that fork truck would have. Second story. We had seven people retire last year. Uh, walked away with tens of millions of dollars between them. One of the gentlemen was a customer service representative. Didn't make a tremendous amount of money, but was with us for a long time and had early shares and a, a good team member. We had a party with balloons and cake and I gave a speech about everybody. And this one gentleman comes up to me and says, Ken, uh, when I came to work uh, at New Age 18, 19 years ago, I thought I would have to work till age 65 based on numbers. I'm 60 years old and I'm retiring, and the ESOP was able to allow me to retire. Both of my parents are still alive, they're, they're local. I have a couple kids 
that live nearby, and I have some grandkids. Basically, this Aesop gave me five years to take care of my family. So that's pretty cool. That's what this type of uh, business model can do. It, it can change lives, and the money can be actually generational. If somebody walks away with three, four million dollars, which we do have those team members, that if, if they invested right, that money can actually be um, uh, inherited down to the next generation and maybe even to the grandkids. Well, like you do not, you know, work at an employee-owned company, but I'd assume that there is an employee-owned company that motivated you to become involved in this space. I mean, what do you, what do you think of when you think of that? Thanks. So, um, so two things. So, I'm from a small town in uh, downstate Illinois, outside of Peoria, uh, and uh, the bank where I, you know, I've banked ever since I was little is uh, is uh, the Morton Community Bank, which is uh, an ESOP, and it's uh, actually the largest uh, S corp ESOP bank. Uh, there is, and uh, since I banked there, you know, when I was I was little, I was given a hundred dollars worth of, of stock in it at one time, and um, I gradually invested. And we remained, my wife and I, uh, we got married about twenty years ago. When it con right soon after, uh, soon before it converted to an S corp, uh, ESOP, and so we've remained shareholders. And it's uh, it's been the best thing financially that's that's ever happened to me. And uh, you know by. Uh, by dint of growing up in a small town where everybody knows each other. I, I've known the president most of my life and uh, having a, a, a PhD, I'm occasionally doing things for them. And so the last time I was home, um, I met him uh, for breakfast and uh, he took me to uh, on a walk through the uh, the main headquarters. They, we have now 55 uh, branches across central Illinois. Uh, it's a $4 billion bank and he likes to introduce me to his millionaire tellers. Um, <laughs> And everyone who, you know, one of the things you observe um, with um, ESOPs is that uh, uh, tenure goes up quite a bit. People are much less likely to uh, quit. Uh, so I, I uh, did my PhD in economics at Indiana University. One of my advisors was uh, Ben Craig. And Ben Craig uh, became a prominent labor economist because of a series of papers he did with John Pencavel from Stanford on uh, productivity and uh, uh, firm ownership. And so what uh, uh, Ben and, and John did is they got this data, unique data from all these uh, lumber mills and uh, uh, facilities like that in the Pacific Northwest. And there was a wide variety of uh, ownership structures. Some were ordered by, owned by sea companies, some were ordered, owned by uh, uh, sole proprietors, and uh, some were, uh, if not ESOPs, some were ESOPs, and then some were also owned by uh, employees in a non-ESOP arrangement. And so the fundamental question they were trying to determine is does how we arrange ownership uh, affect productivity? And the answer was uh, unambiguous. It, it, it does quite a bit. That uh, employee-owned firms are significantly more productive. And, uh, you know, it's not... It, it's not it wasn't incredibly in, intuitive at the time in economics. So you, if you know, for instance, if you... Uh, do a C corporation and you allow people to own, uh, to buy shares, you give them shares. It, it's such a small proportion of, of the company, it doesn't really seem to matter a whole lot. Why, and, and again, you know, you take uh, your example, these people don't own all that much more of a share. Why does it matter to them? But it does, it, it has a big deal. And you know, one of the things that, that um, you observed was, was, was uh, spot on, is that uh, people stick around for a lot longer and it turns out, uh, Productivity goes up quite a bit when people stick around longer. Um, and then the other thing that they found out, uh, again, just apropos your story, is that um, uh, you know the, the kind of the wear and tear of the equipment, depreciation seemed to be lower in um, employee-owned firms. So uh, you know th these articles were published uh, in the late uh, in the late '90s, but uh, they're still pretty seminal in in, in this area. So we'll dig into regulations a little bit now. And I did, you were talking about the conversion process for Crabes a Latte. What was your experience with, you know, the regulatory space? And what are some things that the government, you know, could do differently from your perspective? Yeah. Um, so, so I like to balance uh, for those who, you know, having gone through a, a number of transactions throughout my life, including venture capital and private equity, you know, bank lending, mezzanine, 
the ESOP transaction in itself is not wholly that much more complicated than anything else. It does require more effort from the seller side, which to run the transaction, which given that many uh, entrepreneurs, that's not their fundamental skill set, um, it, it takes longer than like a PE transaction because they, they're not, they don't know how to set the toll gates to actually effectuate decisions that then get to like the closing. Um, where you run into the complexity is in the running of the plan and synchronizing it with the business, um, and like and the uniqueness of your business, your employee base, um, and your growth plans. That is where, um, particularly plan design, where it's if you give a benefit, you can't take it away concept within ERISA is, is difficult <laughs> to manage because you're trying to plan for something 20, 40 years down the road. A lot of early ESOPs, we were lucky we did not make these mistakes, but we've made other mistakes. Um, it give away too much too early, right? That's like a really big concern. Um, but knowing that you're making a decision today that could impact where the company is 20 years ago and really cause issues is really hard. So if you're talking about regulatory relief, some level additional flexibility that still inherently protects workers, you know, the, the wealth that they've been given through the stock, that's absolutely important, but layers in some flexibility for the company to know that the plan has to change over time. And if you give, if, you know, if, if you can't change it in some ways, make it more restrictive in the future, you could be endangering the ESOP long-term and that's not good for the, for the shareholders. Um, and not, you know, uh, some other great ones would be, um, Jim was talking about the 8A program, just certifications in general. So the aid program is for disadvantaged businesses in the federal procurement system, but certifications in general really are very oriented to the person and not a group body. And as such, the forms that you fill out, all the things, the way people think about who owns what is not tailored to this concept of ESOPs and group ownership. I think that's fundamental. I personally think this, there could be set-asides, particularly from large businesses. I have gone to our, our major clients are all Fortune 100 companies like Pfizer and Merck. And in the extent that I am speaking with procurement individuals, I bring up that we are 100% employee owned and it could that be fit into their ESG. And I think I've made an inroads with one of our clients that we're going to see where that goes. But these are things that owner, like employee owner owned companies, management team should be having those conversations within their respective industries. Um, banks, I think, should be reporting on ESOP funding as a key requirement to their regulators. I think that could be another. Once again, uh, just like we spoke about advisors not really knowing, a lot of banks really don't know the ESOP space. So then, of course, what we have is we're concentrated with a couple banks, which is great for them, but not great for more ESOPs, right? Um, because they don't know how to underwrite ESOPs. So if we had to report on ESOPs, it would automatically start making people think, um, hey, we need to build the specialty. A specialty. And, um, the, SBIC, uh, it, the SBIC investment is great. And then, um, yeah, and there's a whole list of things we could be changing and improving on, and we just have to focus on a couple and get those done and move forward. But uh, there is definitely a lot of regulatory relief that is required to ensure that as more businesses are enter ESOP space, the regulatory requ requirements can can meet the needs of more companies and the diversity of those companies, and more impo most importantly, it's these smaller companies. So, Crepes is a very small ESOP, right? We're thirty three full time employees. When we started, we were about twenty twenty one. Um, now we're a very profitable company that helps us pay for all the expense structure, but. Um, like getting it to companies smaller than us is going to be key for growing this number of ESOPs. And then ideally those small companies get bigger over time. But if it's too hard to enter, if you're 1 million, 2 million in EBITDA, uh, the generally guidance is two and a half to 3 million minimum, then we're automatically decreasing the pie of potential employee owner companies. And anything you want to add about, you know, your experience with the, regulations around conversion? Well, um, 
I, I wanted to t uh, talk about a little bit of uh, awareness and, and how state governments can help out, which is uh, creating offices of the employee ownership within the state government, within community and economic development. Uh, at the PA CEO, we're working on a bill uh, on that. And, and, uh, and there are certain, uh, Colorado, I, I think we had a, a discussion on that. All the states should have that type of office and actually funding different things. Could be um, uh, feasibility studies, it could be uh, uh, financing, it could be all sorts of things. So I, I think that would really help out the industry. Um, uh, I'm going to get on my high horse and, and, and talk about private equity once again. I, the, the, it's not an equal uh, playing field. The, uh, the, the tax liability of, of a uh, subchapter S uh, corporation, when the uh, employee gets the benefit, it's, it's taxed at ordinary income. And so private equity should be taxed at uh, ordinary income. And and then they're not. And and um, if if that went away, there would be a lot more ESOPs because that's a com in my in my view, uh, with all the conversations I have with selling shareholders, uh, that is the competition, which is uh, the um, uh, uh, private equity. Not all private equity is bad. There <laughs> are some good private equity firms, but the vast majority. There, well, the, the uh, previous panel talked about that. I, I forget the woman who, who talked about that. It was, it was a great story that, that, that she told. All right, well, I think Ike, that's your cue. I mean, how can tax policy help support yeah. employee ownership? Um, you know, it, it's, uh, it's tricky these days in Congress, as all of us are aware of, to uh, get uh, bipartisan legislation passed, and especially, I think, the next two years, when it's, it's really difficult to conceive of us doing anything uh, kind of on the tax front or the regulatory front in terms of uh, major legislation. But, uh, you know, I always uh, take great, um, uh, great admiration. And my old boss, Senator Hatch, who was a big advocate of uh, both ESOPs and S corporations. And when I worked for him, he, um, one of the things he did early on in each new Congress is he would meet with uh, the AICPA, and he would, um, and he he started doing this in the 90s, um, and he would ask them to come up with 10 things he could do for S corporations and ESOPs that would make their lives easier, and uh, and so he had this list, and he carried it with him, and when he would go into some kind of negotiation, and he knew he had some kind of uh, leverage to get something, he would kind of go along the list and. You know, whoever the economist uh, was, or the advisor, tax guy was sitting next to him, we would tell him, you know, he, we'd have them order in terms of kind of costliness or efficacy, and we'd say, oh, see if you can get number four, and, and we'd settle for number seven. And But really, every Congress, he would get a couple of things that would make life a little bit better for um, ESOPs or um, S corporations. And in, in fact, the, the thing that um, he, uh, Senator Hatch did, but this was even before... I, uh, I worked for him that was very effective is um, for the, and, and would and, uh, our bank would not be an ESOP S Corp if it were not for this is um, uh, when you define ownership in an S corporation it's it's a hundred uh, it's a hundred people but if you're related to one another you count as uh, as one owner and uh, what Senator Hatch put in uh, is that uh, relationship goes for uh, five generations. So if you have the same, uh, if, if uh, we were to have the same great, uh, one great grandparent, we would count as one family. Um, so, uh, you know, Morton, the, the town where our uh, Morton, Illinois, the town's bank is, was um, founded by uh, a, a sect that was an offshoot of uh, the Mennonite faith. And these people were basically pushed out of uh, Germany and, and all settled in mass in uh, in Morton, and uh, my grandmother, who was an infant at the time, was was one of those people. So it turns out we are we are all related to one another, and so, wow. <laughs> um, you know, our hundred shareholders uh, goes up to uh, I, I think we have five or six hundred uh, different people who actually own uh, stock. And so, you know, there's some you know we heard the previous one. There's some really important things that are kind of big that need to be done to help ESOPs, and absolutely we should be uh, pushing for this. But we should always keep in mind. 
Um, look, take what we can get. A half a loaf is better than, uh, than no loaf. And just thinking about what we can do just to push the, uh, the ball down the, the road a little bit is, uh, is I think, always, especially, and especially in this situation, uh, the, the best strategy for advancing the cause of ESOPs. All right. Well, I mean, like you said, the next two years in Congress are uh, complicated times. You won't accomplish anything, but this obviously is an issue that has some bipartisan buy-in. And so what's the half of loaf on the table now, to use your phrasing? Um, you know, I'm not sure that uh, anyone's really thinking about uh, hard about this in any of the uh, committees that have jurisdiction. So, you know, I what I follow most closely um, uh, because I, I have some, uh, you know, uh, experience there, you know, House Financial Services, the Banking Committee, and uh, the uh, uh, Senate Finance Committee. And, uh, you know, the Senate Finance Committee, which has, uh, of course, jurisdiction over taxes, is trying to figure out what to do about the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, many of whose provisions are expiring. And so, to me, uh, you know, they might be able to do something on that in the next, by the end of 2024, but I, I suspect that there will be a big fight in 2025 when uh, that expires and our uh, individual tax rates go up. Uh, that both sides are not going to want to have all those tax rates go up. And so I think, I'm not sure what it is that's out there that we can grab for ESOPs, but I, I kind of think that this is the vehicle that we, that we need to be thinking about attaching stuff to right now. And so. Um, you know, thinking about how you can inform the Finance Committee and Ways and Means Committee staffers about, uh, about the things, the, the, the hindrances to ESOPs and their benefits are, uh, is the way to go. You know, one of the, by the way, one of the things I, uh, I do besides my uh, consulting firm, else, I run this thing called the, um, with a couple of my friends, it's called the Savings and Retirement Foundation, and 95% uh, of what it is is a seminar for people with uh, PhDs in economics who like to think about issues related to um, savings and retirement issues. And so we have a lot of uh, participants from the Treasury, from IRS, uh, Social Security, EBSA. And so um, if, if you're the type of person who likes to follow research related to this, and we do have people occasion talk about um, um, ESOPs, uh, let me know and we'd be happy to put you on the list. And you know, right now, unfortunately, we're still mainly doing Zoom, but uh, last, last summer we, we did an event in this, in this room to talk about uh, savings and retirement and the situation. And, uh, uh, you know, it, as you remember, last year was still almost impossible to get people into the Capitol. So it's great to be in the Capitol when people are kind of mingling about again. All right. Well, I, Dave, we'll turn to you. As Craves a Latte plots a path forward, um, what do you hope that policymakers keep in mind? Yeah, as a, as a small company, once again, I would really say putting employee ownerships into ESG uh, initiatives at the corporate level and at the procurement level will really help grow employee ownership, right? Because now knowing that when I'm working with our clients like Abby and Novartis, that we're getting preferential treatment for being employee-owned will make our procurement process. Let me give you an exact number. Uh, they take 90 days to pay us. <laughs> we have to expend all of our money, and they take 90 days to pay us. But the procurement people told me that if we were a woman or minority-owned business, they could give us 30-day terms. So that's a, that's a big uh, number in terms of financing. So these types of things that could help smooth the pipes of employee ownership and allow for platforms for growth of small businesses that then you know, go back to the investments of our local community are important. Um, and they don't have to just be federal laws. They can be uh, done at the state level as well as at the private level where you get these large multinational companies to acknowledge that we belong in the ESG forum of their reports. And we're going to take a brief pause, actually, for a uh, new speaker and then come back for Ken's answer as well as questions. Well, Eleanor, thank you, and, and thank you to the panel. My name is Jack Moriarty. Um, I'm an institute fellow and excited to be here in a, a new capacity as the new assistant director of policy analysis at the institute. Uh, but most importantly, I'm delighted to be introducing Congressman Blake Moore, who's with us this afternoon. Congressman Moore represents Utah's first district. He joined Congress in 2021 and is an advocate for inclusive pro-growth and aspirational principles. The congressman currently serves on the House Ways and Means Committee, where he sits on the health care, social security, and work and welfare subcommittees. He also serves on the House Budget Committee 
Before being elected to Congress, Congressman Moore worked for small businesses and in the Foreign Service. He has expertise in education, financial services, public policy, healthcare, transportation, supply chain, waste industries, and employee ownership. President, uh, in his first term, Congressman Moore was the most successful freshman member of Congress in terms of legislation passed, with four bills signed into law by President Biden and several more passed through committee. And of course, he's here with us today for his strong leadership on employee ownership as one of the lead sponsors of the Employee Equity Investment Act. Um, and I'd be remiss not to also say that um, the Congressman, I understand, is the starting center fielder for tonight's congressional baseball game. <laughs> so thanks for joining us on the big game day, Congressman. Thank you, Jack. Uh, all you need to know about Jack, you got to read my bio. Uh, my, my legislative team, oh my goodness, Sarah Kay. <laughs> it's so great to see you. I look forward to chatting with you later. Oh, I did not expect to see you sitting back there. That's really exciting. Um, my, my legislative uh, aide on this particular issue walked over and said, uh, remember, his name's Jack, and he's the policy wonk on this. So he gets the details of this, and that is so critically important. It's the actual details that make this particular piece of legislation that we're working on with Senators uh, Van Holland, Rubio, and then uh, my good friend, and he probably plays in the outfield too, Dean Phillips for the, for the Democrat team tonight. Um, you can see there's a big focus on the baseball game today. There's a buzz in the air. Uh, the, 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 the concept of this and the actual policy of it is what continues to bring Congress together and I'm hopeful that we can drive this forward. I don't know how you argue against something like ESOPs. At the root of what every single talking point is, from a Democratic or Republican standpoint, is growing the middle class, being able to provide a good, good positive future and a strong workforce, right? And um, nothing does more for, in my opinion, uh, a strong retirement. Given the constraints that we have, folks, we have a massive problem. From 1935, when there was 45 workers paying into one beneficiary system in Social Security, we have a very different system now. We have far fewer workers in a large retirement class. Like, we have to be willing to think about what's best for the future. And there are amazing individuals that have led companies, that have led industry, that as their legacy, they want to make sure that they can have their legacy live on. And how do you do that? by creating a strong, in most cases, private sector organization that's gonna give ownership to that brand new worker, that frontline worker, that person that has never been able to have do anything other than live paycheck to paycheck and just burn out all of their income on all of the things that, that, that they have to, to provide for. To be able to go to work and fundamentally change what we read about in all those texts that talk about the importance of equity and the importance of ownership, and this is giving that opportunity because it doesn't always exist. And so if we, as members of Congress and lawmakers, truly want to address income inequality, like this is at the root and the, and the, and the foundation of it. And that's why I'm so excited and, and, and supportive of it. Uh, and, and, and it takes individuals like Jim Sorensen, who's, who's back in Utah, who has been successful, who has looked towards the future and turned his success into success for so many others. And that's what I, that's what I love about individuals that, uh, you know, that I get to interact with, that, that, that are inside my network, because they have taken positive experiences in either a professional life, uh, a social uh, entrepreneurship type of work, and they're trying to promote that in the best way possible. And so it's absolutely an honor for, for my team and I to be able to to dig into this particular issue. And you know, we got a little bit of pushback on the very first time we tried last term. We were late in the term. Uh, it wasn't, we weren't out ahead of it. And this year, and I'm glad to be able to share with this team because it's highly relevant for today, uh, with the new chairman of the Small Business Committee, I looked at my team and I said, Roger Williams is now the chair. Um, I'm the starting center fielder. He's the coach. He needs to make sure we have a strong outfield otherwise we don't win and I'm gonna let I want ESOPs as a part of the the plan and I want them to be okay with letting this go forward so let's go ahead I'm learning how to use leverage in this place of Congress 
I said, I'm not going to be your starting center fielder unless we can get ESOPs through. <laughs> so we're working on it. There are so many amazing positive aspects to this. Uh, it, but but, at the, but the, the root of it, it just makes sense. And it can fulfill any talking point any politician in these walls want to talk about in growing lower income and middle class Americans, providing opportunity for them and ensuring their retirement. Because it, it's, it's every single American out there is scared right now. They're worried about what's to come. They are, they're, they're sensible. They understand that if there is an insolvency pending with Social Security, and that's just math, that's not rhetoric or politics, they, that we need to make sure that we're thinking ahead of this. And this is an opportunity a decade, even more, before this really gets to that point that we have an opportunity sincerely to address it in a way. And I go and I, and I interact with companies in Utah that are doing this, and there are so many positive uh, outcomes that have come from it with really good, strong, positive employee retention, which is key uh, to, to show for it. And so I'm, I'm thrilled to be somebody that can champion it and uh, we'll do whatever I can, and my team is, is know this is a priority. So thank you all.